Welcome to the Cato Institute. Thank you all for coming. I also want to thank our C-SPAN audience for joining us today as well. My name is Stephen Slavinsky. I'm Director of Budget Studies here at the Cato Institute. And today the uh, book we're celebrating, a release of, is titled The Big Ripoff, How Big Business and Big Government Steal Your Money. Now, there's a big myth in American politics today. It's the supposition that whenever business organizations and trade groups get involved in politics, they're doing so because they want to get government off their back. Well, that's only half true. They do sometimes want to get government off their back, but instead of simply leaving it at that, they also lobby to place government on the backs of their business competitors in the process. Or, short of that, they at least want special handouts for themselves they, as a means of protection against the forces of competition within the free market. Now, these sorts of handouts have been broadly grouped by observers like myself under the rubric of corporate welfare. Uh, these direct subsidies to businesses cost taxpayers about $90 billion each year, according to the latest estimate from the Cato Institute. That only shows the edges of the phenomenon. That estimate does not include tax breaks, cartel protections, tax barriers, and various regulatory barriers to competition. These sorts of corporate welfare undoubtedly equal countless billions more. And the cost of them are borne by consumers, in the form of higher prices at the store, fewer choices in the marketplace, and higher barriers to entry for small businesses and entrepreneurs. In other words, the big ripoff. Tim Carney's book is a well-written and much-needed refutation of this big myth. The big riff-off is also essential as a tool to understanding the lobbying scandals that have afflicted Washington, D.C. lately. As humorous P.J. O'Rourke once noted, when buying and selling are controlled by legislation, the first things to be bought and sold are legislators. Fueled by Tim's hard-hitting investigative reporting, which includes many stories that I, as a policy wonk who studied this issue for many years, didn't even know myself, The Big Ripoff is a book that really should be read by every concerned citizen and taxpayer. At $24.95 cover price, the book itself is not a ripoff. In fact, considering the information inside, it's really quite a bargain. Even more of a bargain for $14 outside here in the lobby. I encourage you to buy a copy for yourself or a friend, and Tim would be more than pleased to sign as many copies as he can upstairs in the lunch immediately following today's program. I also want to thank uh, Mr. Jim Pinkerton of Newsday and Fox News for being here, being here today to provide us with his thoughts on the book. For those of you who don't know, Jim has worked at the White House under President Ronald Reagan and George Bush. Since leaving government in 1993, he's been a columnist for Newsday and a contributor to the Fox News channel and a regular on its Newswatch show. His writings has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, New Republic, Slate, among many others. I think he also uh, stakes claim to being one of the tallest people in Washington, D.C. I also want to note there's going to be a short question and answer session after Jim presents his remarks. He'll be commenting on the book after Tim speaks. And so with that, let me go ahead and introduce you to Mr. Timothy Carney. He's a freelance investigative reporter and also the Warren Brooks Journalism Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's been published in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Times, New York Sun, National Review Online, and the American Spectator. He's also been an associate editor at Human Events Magazine, a Phillips Foundation fellow, and he cut his teeth in the journalism world working for columnist Robert Novak. In fact, Robert Novak refers to Tim in the introduction as possibly the best political reporter who's worked for him in the past 25 years. My opinion, this book is very strong proof of that. Please help me in welcoming Mr. Timothy Carney. Thank you, Steve. Uh, thanks to the Cato Institute. Thank you, everybody who uh, came through the heat to come here today. The <clears throat> last summer at this time, I was uh, working on my book, and six months before, I had gone up to New York and interviewed two uh, two businessmen, small businessmen, Bill Minnick and Bill Brody. One, Bill Brody, he lived in, uh, in Rye, New York, just a couple towns away from my parents. He had a hardware store down in the Bronx, and then a couple towns away from that in Port Chester, New York, he had bought a couple rundown buildings on a dirty little waterfront there and renovated them. And they had turned into a laundromat. He bragged the best laundromat in town. It turned into a Hispanic food store, a couple other small businesses there. And... Uh, he was approached one day by a developer up in Port Chester who said, we'd like to buy your land. And, but this was Bill Brody's retirement. This was his uh, – he got steady income from then. He was going to quit the hardware store business in a few years and just live off of that and then pass the uh, buildings down to his children. So Brody said, we're not going to sell. And then the developer said, well, then we're going to take them. 
And when Brody tried to complain to his, the local politicians in Port Chester, they said, oh, well, here's the number you need to call. It was the number of the developer. And uh, sure enough, last summer at this time, the Kilo decision came down, Kilo v. New London, and I uh, reveled in reading liberal blogs for the next two days where these people just went ballistic about the fact that big business was going to be taking over the houses of these uh, poor families there in Connecticut. And my favorite part was when they would acknowledge and say, what kills me the most that Antonin Scalia was right on this and Clarence Thomas was right on this and that the good judges Stevens, Breyer, Ginsburg, etc the good judges were wrong on this what went wrong? How did they end up on the side of big business? Well, I don't think that Scalia or uh, Stevens care very much what size business is on and in this crowd there are probably people who have their complaints about Scalia from a libertarian perspective but at least relatively speaking Scalia is going to take the side of the smaller government and Stevens is going to take the side of the bigger government in economic issues. And in this case, and the, a lot of the liberals saw this as an exception, in this case, big business actually profited from bigger government. And uh, I, I liked it when I saw those lines out there because I realized that the story I had to tell in this book hadn't been told enough. And I love it when Al Gore recently said, you know that you need... Uh, global warming restrictions when even the head of Duke Energy is saying something has to be done. And even the head of Duke Energy is calling for a carbon dioxide tax. Really, even the head of a company who has monopolies in all their uh, carbon fire, their coal-fired power plants, state-controlled state monopoly, state-controlled prices, he's calling for a tax on the coal? That's, that just means he raises his prices on the customers. It should, if you said even the customers who know their rates are going to go up want a tax on carbon, that would be worth the even. But no, we get the even the head of Walmart has said that the minimum wage needs to be raised. Walmart pays 10 to $12. At the lowest I've read is in the $8 range per hour. Minimum wage hike they're talking about would go up to 7 So Walmart CEO says, well, our, our consumers can't afford uh, enough at this point. And they'll be able to afford more when they get laid off. They, these guys understand economics at Walmart. They understand economics better than almost anyone else. And they understand that mom and pop paying high school kids, hiring high school kids are the ones who are most likely to be paying minimum wage. And that they'll be hurt. And there's one fewer competitor there if the minimum wage goes up. And the idea is completely lost on the mainstream media for the most part. And so I try to pepper the book with all sorts of these stories. Uh, the people here at Cato are very good at explaining the basic economics, and I mostly try to stay away from that and just tell the stories that get reported once in a while as the aberrations, as the, in an interesting twist, Philip Morris wants more regulation of tobacco. Even uh, General Motors is calling for uh, stricter new rules on auto emissions. And to say there, there is no interesting twist when it happens again and again. And unfortunately, it's also not a new trend. Um, I want to read from the book here for a tiny bit from the part that uh, mentions the building we're standing in. This is in my chapter called The History of Big Business is the History of Big Government. In northwest Washington, D.C., on the south side of Massachusetts Avenue, between 10th and 11th Streets, stands a unique building defined by a large glass atrium the inhabitants call the Winter Garden. It is the headquarters of the Libertarian Cato Institute. Across the street sits a monument to American Federation of Labor founder Samuel Gompers, once a Marxist and today revered as a founder of the American Labor Movement. Given the disparate political leanings, the contrast is amusing. The men who gathered at the Department of War, however, on December 6, 1916, struck a more startling contrast. Samuel Gompers in the flesh sat at the table with President Woodrow Wilson, Secretary of War Newton Baker, Secretary of the Navy, the Agriculture Secretary, the Commerce Secretary, and the Labor Secretary. Joining Gompers and these Democratic politicians were Daniel Willard, the president of the B&O Railroad, Howard Coffin, president of Hudson Motor Company, Wall Street financier Bernard Baruch, 
and a handful of other uh, businessmen and a scientist and a doctor. This extraordinary gathering was the first meeting of the Council of National Defense, formed by Congress and President Woodrow Wilson as a means for organizing, quote, the whole industrial mechanism in the most effective way. The Council on National Defense coordinated the manufacture of munitions and other war necessities, but it did a lot more. The businessmen at this 1916 meeting had dreams for the CND that went far beyond America's imminent involvement in the Great War, both in breadth and in duration. It is our hope, said Howard Coffin, the head of the Hudson Motor Company, it is our hope that we may lay the foundation for that closely niche structure, industrial, civil, and military, which every thinking American has come to realize is vital to the future life of this country in peace and in commerce, no less than in possible war. And I've got uh, some other quotes in here from... uh, Someone, one businessman who was there saying, the War Industries Board, oh, sorry, the War Industries Board was a successor to the Council on National Defense. The War Industries Board extended its antenna into the innermost recesses of industry. Never was there such an approach to omniscience in the business affairs of a continent. The approach to omniscience. And this uh, happened again during World War II, where business and government get together and they decide business, nothing is more efficient and robust than industry. And in the minds of a lot of the elites who ran the businesses, and certainly in the minds of uh, the politicians, nothing is more altruistic and philanthropic and right-minded than the government. So why not having uh, have business do the rowing and have government do the steering? And this is not an upsetting idea to business at all. And I don't use the word in the book because it makes people think of Nazis and invading Poland and all the other atrocities. But fascism is the word that's used to describe this sort of partnership between business and government. But when liberals or the mainstream media complain about conservative influence in Washington, and they don't mind uh, throwing out the word fascism, Robert uh, RFK Jr., gave a whole spiel on that on the radio or in one of his articles recently. They call that fascism when, say, Bush doesn't raise the arsenic standards on drinking water because somebody who would lose money from the drinking water standards going up doesn't lose the money. Or a tax cut across the board that rich people get to save more money. That's that's. There's no difference in some people's mind between less government helping big business and more government helping big business. It's actually an interesting problem. I'm going to read you a good quote from the book in a second, but when I was meeting with independent booksellers, uh, I was very excited about this, and one bookseller came up to me and said, I heard about your book, and it's a great idea, and I'm going to stock it because this is exactly the problem that I'm complaining about. And she was in Portland, Oregon, or San Francisco, or or Greenwich Village, they were all from towns like that. And she said, for example, Starbucks wants to start selling books. And I said, oh, wow, that's, that's got to be rough for you. You should definitely uh, stock my book in your bookstore. There, there's no distinction in some people's mind between that. But uh, uh, Steve used the words, the big myth, and I have a section on that. And there was a documentary made, uh, but it was also turned into a book, and it was called The Corporation. And I start my book with pointing out that 90% of Americans in a recent poll said that big business has too much influence in Washington, and then asking, well, what does it do with this, uh, with this too much influence? Uh, and here, there, the uh, documentary said, most of the time when big business is lobbying in Washington, it is lobbying for less regulations and lower taxes. And there's nothing to back that up. And obviously, we do see them lobbying for less regulations and lower taxes. But because journalists tend to be a little scared of businessmen, because journalists are not businessmen and uh, we don't wear as nice suits as the businessmen. We don't make as much money. We usually ride the metro while the businessmen drive in and park in their $10 a day garages. They're a little bit scary to us. And the free market is terrifying to the average reporter who really thinks a free market's good, but too free. That's what caused the 
depression, and that's the extent of their economics, even if they're covering economic issues in Capitol Hill. So uh, both of those issues fall into the scary category for reporters, the free market and businessmen. And so since they're both scary, then they must both go together. And that's what we're up against, and it creates a real problem. It creates a problem because it makes it so much easier for someone to attack advocates of the free market, advocates of the regulation, as being corporate shills. You don't have to make an argument if you can just say, well, you're opposing ethanol because you're working for the oil industry, or you're opposing, you're calling for tax cuts because you're just doing the bidding of the big rich, uh, the, the big business and the rich. And uh, it, it frees them from having to make an argument for their big government policy. And so I don't – well, I, when I was working for Bob Novak, I got a call from someone who had FOIA'd emails from Enron that it, the government had their hands on. And we helped get out that Enron had been lobbying the Bush administration through Paul O'Neill to ratify the Kyoto Global Warming Treaty strict regulations on energy use and all this stuff. And so when Novak reported that and it showed up in the Washington Post and some other uh, conservative outlets reported this, uh, Timothy Noah in Slate said, well, just because Enron stood to profit from Kyoto and thus supported it doesn't mean that Enron was bad. And all of a sudden you're thinking, how come, how come it does make it bad that Bush's supporters stand to profit from when Bush wants to deregulate something? And probably when Bush pushes regulations, you will get the mainstream media luckily looking into who might benefit from the, the big government policies that he pushes. So I do have a whole section in corporate welfare here that's heavily reliant on uh, Steve's work and the Cato's Institute, Cato Institute's work. But for me, that stuff is only sort of part of the tip of the iceberg, as Steve said. It's the actual looking for stricter regulations. So the simple economic argument, the, the easiest one, is regulation adds to overhead, and that acts as a barrier to entry, keeping out possible new competitors and disproportionately affecting smaller businesses. And so with that simple fact, it all of a sudden becomes, and every radio host I talk to, once I say that, they all of a sudden understand most of this. But some of them are a lot more clever, some of the regulations and the big government stuff they push for. I, uh, I mentioned how you often hear, oh, well, he's paid by the oil industry or this. I have a, a section of that in my chapter called uh, – the last section of my book is probably my favorite. It's called Green is the Color of Money, and Chapter 10 is called Environmentalism for Profit. And it's sort of just a run-through of uh, – Various different, uh, various different schemes where big businesses are lobbying for environmental policy, getting good press off of it, and then on the other side profiting off of it in a way they couldn't in a free market. And I uh, quote Juliet Eilprin, a writer for the Washington Post, who wrote in November, um, she wrote this article talking about all these people who wanted stricter regulation of global warming laws, and then ends it by saying, uh, by quoting Roy Spencer. Now, this was her way of getting balance. She quotes eight people who want strict regulation. She quotes Roy Spencer, who she calls a someone who, quote, does not believe the climate will warm as rapidly as many computer models predict. He's a scientist. She describes him as um, someone who, quote, contributes to the free market online journal Tech Central Station, which is in part funded by oil companies opposed to mandatory carbon limits. Now, I've got nothing wrong with a reporter throwing that in. I think that's great because everybody might have ulterior motives. So you quote them because their argument might be good, and then you mention their affiliation because their motives might not be good. But I went back through Juliet's article, and I looked at what she didn't say. When she quoted Joe Biden... Uh, she didn't say, Joe Biden, whose primary source of funding is a DuPont corporation, who supports a uh, corporation that supports greenhouse gas laws, has invested more than anyone else in carbon dioxide credits. No, she didn't say that. She didn't, when she quoted the Natural Resources Defense Council, she did not say uh, a group funded by banking corporation that stands to profits from restrictions on greenhouse gas emissions, that is, the biggest banking corporation in the world that has invested more than anyone else in windmills and other alternative fuels, 
energy that lots of people argue is worthless. Uh, Citigroup might think it's worthless in itself. They're funding Natural Resources Defense Council, but they know that with the right government policies, it can become worth something. When GE had its eco-imagination launch, they didn't have it. It had uh, uh, organically grown wine and windmill-generated hors d'oeuvres somehow, and they... (laughs) They didn't hold their – they said, well, this isn't just about helping the planet. We want to help the planet, but we know we got to help our our shareholders too, so we're going to make money by doing good. And they held the event on Pennsylvania Avenue, halfway between the White House and the Capitol, and then Jeffrey Immelt, the CEO, then went and met with with people in the White House and people in in Congress, meaning they're going to make money by pushing the right regulations that's going to mandate – their product. And uh, the chapter on ethanol in here discusses it. The chapter on Enron in here discusses it. And the Enron thing points to one more cost and one more thing, reason I think it was important to write this book. The, the quotes that came out after Enron, this is a casualty of the free market. This is what happens when government doesn't control anybody. This was deregulation in California. I tear all of those down to try to make the point Enron would have been a small pipeline company whose collapse would have been unfortunate for Ken Lay and for a few thousand employees, but wouldn't have been devastating in the way it was if the government hadn't propped them up. The games they played in California would not have been possible without regulations that Enron fought tooth and nail for. So I think it's an important idea to get out there. The one final reason it's important to get this stuff out there about big business supporting big government is that too often defenders of liberty give a free pass to big business. Next time Altria comes calling on some group or some politician here in Washington who's a conservative free market guy, the Altria lobbyists will probably get in the door despite the fact that Philip Morris has been pounding away for FDA regulation of tobacco for years, not to mention the Master Settlement Agreement, which is also covered in here. We, we assume that big business is on our side because we know that the left and most of the media hate most big businesses. And then we give them free passes. But we also don't reward them enough for being advocates of the free market. I mean, Microsoft and Walmart both have been companies that have tried to stick up for the free market, gotten beaten up, not gotten much love. They've gotten love from the consumers, but then that starts to taper off with enough enough bad press. And then they come to Washington and they get pounded for, uh, for not coming to Washington more frequently. And so the left is good at, and government people are good at providing incentives to come over to the big government side. And there's not enough incentives to come over to the free market side because uh, the benefits of the free, ma- free market, we argue, are widely dispersed and the benefits of government can be very narrowly concentrated and they're not concentrated on mom and pop. They're concentrated on the people who have the best lobbyists, which is GE, General Motors, Enron, Boeing, all the, the companies that have long listings in my index. Uh, so uh, later on, I'll look forward to the questions and uh, look forward to what Jim has to say. And thank you again all for coming. Justice a little bit, as best I can. Um, well, th- thank you all. Uh, if I'd known C-SPAN was going to be here, I would have dressed up. But it is about 102 degrees outside, and, and um, so I figured I'd just compromise. Um, both uh, uh, Tim and Stephen kicked this discussion off with a good point about the nature of, of capitalism and capitalists. Uh, um, uh, you know, I think too many people on the libertarian right end of things have took Max Weber too seriously when he talked about the Protestant ethic and how virtuous capitalists were. And then they read way too much Ayn Rand about how great capitalists are and what, how wonderful they are and so on and so on. Even though, as I seem to recall in Atlas Shrugged, like the goal is to swim away, swim away from drowning people and so on. So it was, even then, the, the virtue was a little bit uh, off. Uh, but I think Adam Smith, who's got pretty good free market credentials, uh, uh, said it best when he observed that merchants never get together for any purpose except 
to talk about fixing prices. That's just, there's no other reason why they possibly want to be in the same room together. And, and uh, that was, you know, 200 plus years ago. And, and I don't think uh, either Stephen or, or Tim would disagree with that characterization of the way that the capitalist mindset works now. Uh, <clears throat> but as, as, as Bill Buckley said, the, the problem with uh, capitalism is capitalists, and the problem with socialism is socialism. So there you are. We're, we're stuck with this. Uh, um, and I think that, that uh, uh, Tim's point about reporters and their simultaneous cluelessness about free markets and their admiration and affection for giant hulking institutions at the same time it, it leaves them with a deep cognitive dissonance where they assume that big government is their friend, kind of, except they don't really trust it. And they assume that big corporations, especially the ones that provide special benefits for gay couples and so on, are their friends and allies and so on and so on. And so they sort of can't really figure out what to make of, of uh, 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 big business and whether to like it or dislike it and, 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 and so on. So his points on... I feel better already. <laughs> Don't forget to move it back down again. Are <laughs> uh, um, well taken. It seems to me that, that what reporters really are in, their, in terms of ideologies, they're sort of sentimentalists. They, they don't really like big institutions, or at least they think they don't, but then when they, they're afraid they're going away, they start to fall in love with them. The big three TV networks. How many times have you read in the Washington Post the last 10 years? Oh, it used to be so great when everybody watched Ed Sullivan and everybody was together watching Bonanza or Gunsmoke. Well, they weren't saying that at the time, but when the institutions fade away, they start to like the big three automakers. Uh, uh, the same thing. Sears Roebuck. Uh, nobody liked Sears Roebuck when it was dominating the country, uh, but, when, but now they do. It's gone away. Walmart, same thing. I guarantee Walmart will go... Oh, things are so great, and we all could go to Walmart and have community feelings, and we were bowling together as both alone. Uh, um, but we're not there yet. Don't get me wrong; we're not we're not there yet. Uh, um, so this book, the big ripoff. It's it's well written. It's full of it, the journalism. And Tim comes out. It's full of stories, which is a, always a, a important point for nerds and walks to remember. Is is that people, no matter whatever thing they're reading and absorbing, they want to hear stories. It also has a terrific historical background. Uh, uh, the stuff on Gabriel Kolko, who is every libertarian's favorite leftist, uh, uh, is worth studying. The whole business about. Uh, uh, Origins of, of cartelization. The chapter on Enron is terrific. Uh, as again, as, an as a company that nobody could figure out, even now, you know, uh, the people eulogizing Ken Lay and can't quite get out of their heads that he, he wasn't a conservative hero. Uh, you still see that in the, in the Wall Street Journal editorial page and, and, and so on. So just it's very important to go back to Adam Smith's wisdom about uh, 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 big big time capitalists. And I, I'm a little bit inspired in in my consideration of this by. Uh, 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 Carl Polanyi, the, the famous economist from the 1930s and 40s, who, who, who wrote a book called The Great Transformation, in which he said, look, the way to think about capitalism and the free market is to understand it's a subset of your society. You know, it's, it's, it, that, that, that those who say that the only thing that matters is the, is the free market have it wrong. That, in fact, any society, any, any, any economy has four sectors. It's got a household sector, it's got a government sector, it's got a civil society sector, and it's got a free market. And you have to always keep the, the free market in the context of those larger uh, forces. Otherwise, you just don't get it right, and you, and you miss where the virtue comes from, because the virtue doesn't necessarily come from the free market. It comes from people who care about each other and have a sense of civic responsibility. And so in that spirit of, of a political take on some of where Tim's uh, uh, work would take us, let me just take issue with four areas in, 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 in the book uh, uh, that, that I hope you all enjoy reading as, as, as much as I did. Um, number one, we begin in, the hist in your history with uh, Alexander Hamilton versus Thomas Jefferson. And Tim quite rightly points out that Alexander Hamilton was the tool of what passed for big business back then and, and land speculators and financiers and, and industrialists and high-tariff jacker-uppers and so on. It's, it's, that's exactly right. Uh, um, and I think there's an element of lament in, in Tim that, that the Hamiltonians defeated the Jeffersonians pretty much politically uh, back in the 1790s and sort of for much of American history ever since, I guess you, is a way to put it, for 200 years of ripoffs. Well, okay, that's one argument. That's one point of view. Another thing to, re to remember, and this I didn't read in the book, is that what was really animating 
Alexander Hamilton and his boss and patron, George Washington, was the fact that we almost lost the American Revolutionary War because we didn't have any armaments. You need an industry. You need factories to make cannons and muskets and ships and whatever else. And you didn't necessarily get those out of a Jeffersonian slave economy. You got those out of Massachusetts and Connecticut manufacturers operating behind ta high tariffs. And, and, and is there an inherent rip-off boondoggle element in that kind of politicization? Of course there is. Do some people get rich at the expense of the public interest? Of course they do. But they also create the armaments industry uh, that lets you win your wars. We had a little experiment in America a little while after uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton and, and George Washington and Jefferson's time as to who wins a war when the Hamiltonians fight the Jeffersonians. That war was called the U.S. Civil War, where the North won because they had all the corrupt, bamboozling, rip-off industrialists and, and capitalists and cartelites, and they made the, musket, the, the, the muskets and the Gatling guns and the cannons and the railroads that enabled the, the North to defeat the Jeffersonian libertarian in slaveholding, so it wasn't a perfect libertarian society, but nonetheless, the, the, the South. So, I mean, I, I, and so when, we, when you hear about the, the Committee on National Defense or the Council, uh, uh, you know, uh, okay, 1916, they get together because the Kaiser, who's engaged in a kind of Leninist total war economy, is threatening the world. And how are we going to beat him? Are we going to beat him with tobacco growers? And, and, and uh, are we going to beat him with our own heavy industry? I mean, I'm not 100% convinced that the plan of, to put it bluntly, fighting fire with fire uh, was so bad. I realize there's a whole you know, school of libertarian thinking that says this was terrible. This is the end of freedom in America. And so I'm like, yeah, well, I'm not sure we'd be more free if the Kaiser had won World War I. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have been more free if Hitler had won World War II. And I'm not even too keen on the Soviets having won the Cold War. So I think that the notion of national defense as an important uh, uh, goal, understanding that in the course of doing so, you empower any number of lobbyists and all the people who fill up the office buildings around here full of, you know, you know, uh, cost plusers and rip-off artists and boondockers. I understand that that's sort of the price you pay for doing it. I'm not aware of another system that, that, that works out better. So in that spirit, the Exim Bank, I, I will sit still for any microeconomic analysis of the Exim Bank and says, yes, it takes money away from consumers and gives it to Boeing and so on and so on. Well, that's all true. Uh, um, is having an aerospace industry so bad? Do we want, who do we want to fly against Airbus with? Who do we want to build? Who we want building airplanes? Do we? Want, I mean, I, I had a conversation with a libertarian, probably best left unnamed. I said, "Well, this is about 20 years ago." I said, "What if we have all the airplane manufacturing and technology manufacturing in Japan, and then we have to fight a war with them or somebody?" To which he said, "In a free trade world, there won't be wars." Okay. Well, all right. You know, it's a theory. Uh, um, you know, and, and then just to, to, uh, other issues of sort of national policy and, 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 and national strategy. Um, ADM, there's a great chapter on ADM. Again, AD, there's a reason why ADM can afford to run ads on TV all the time. Philip Magazine ads full of things about how great they are and how they love the environment and love people and love nature and everything like that. Because it, the, the company is one giant ripoff of the agriculture department of consumers and so like that on behalf of ethanol. Okay, that's all well and good. You're 100% right. Just one problem. Maybe ethanol is a good idea. Maybe the Brazilians, who launched the dreaded big government, socialist, bureaucratic, national government policy of building ethanol in Brazil and now have zero oil imports 30 years later, we're kind of onto something. Maybe our plan of using the miracle of marketplace to, to, to export $200 billion a year to the Persian Gulf, including our friends in Saudi Arabia and, 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 and elsewhere, maybe that's not such a good plan. Maybe that's going to cost us a lot more in externalities uh, than we ever dreamed of in terms of, of uh, uh, what we're getting for it. Uh, so maybe ethanol isn't such a bad idea. Rip-off rip is maybe we have to, the price you pay of enriching the Andreas family uh, is smaller than the price you pay of fighting wars uh, in, in the Persian in, in Gulf forever. Um, Eminent, eminent domain, the, uh, the Kilo decision. I, I, I was around for when that happened, and I saw everybody, how furious everybody was. I also uh, grew up in Chicago, and so I've flown in and out of Midway Airport many times, and it was sort of not lost on me uh, that not long after the Kilo decision, which I realize many states have now overturned, or at least tried to in their, in their own uh, decisions, uh, there, was an, there was an airplane that over, tried to land in Midway and overshot the runway and, and uh, 
hit a highway and killed a, a young child in the intersection. And I thought to myself, well, maybe this airport should be larger. Maybe we, we have a choice between shutting down Midway Airport and just not having an airport there. Or we're going to have to sort of bite the bullet and say, look, we're going to have to take your house or your house or your street or whatever to make the airport bigger. And I'm not sure that's a completely outrageous conclusion that the city of Chicago has an interest in transportation and infrastructure and so on and so on. Uh, say, well, that's minor. We can get along without one air- with, with airports that become obsolete and become overtaken by events and things like that. Well, let's go to some of the other decisions. Uh, uh, that, 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 uh, back to energy. What are we going to do if we decide back to you know, uh, energy? We want to have windmills in places. And the people of uh, Teddy Kennedy doesn't want a windmill uh, off, his, off his house in Nantucket. Or the people in the Hamptons don't want a house, don't want windmills off of, the, the, off of the Long Island. Are we going to ever make a decision as a matter of national policy? It's vital that we not be importing all this oil from the Persian Gulf and elsewhere and Venezuela, and, and, all, and, and uh, not, let alone greenhouse gas issues, and, 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 and it's sense that they're a, a genuine concern. Maybe we'll have to use the heavy thumping hand of government. Maybe we'll have to enrich the windmill lobby uh, 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 to do this. Uh, same thing with, and, and, and just to show I'm being fair and balanced here, uh, nuclear power. You know, maybe the kilo decision gets in the way. Maybe kiloite concerns about energy placement will force us to say, look, we have to be able to build these plants in places. Somebody's got to do it. Otherwise, the free market leaves us in hock to, the, to, the, to OPEC, and I'm not sure that's such a good idea. Anyway, I'll stop there. There's plenty to talk about. Uh, I strongly urge you to, 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 to uh, uh, get your hands on, on Tim's book. There's full of stuff to talk about and, I would say, to argue about. Thank you. <laughs> While I lower this Michael Dukakis Memorial podium, I'll go ahead and I'll give Tim a chance to respond. Uh, A lot of – thank you for uh, the response, Jim. A lot of what you say, the concerns I don't uh, have any problem with. And, in fact, I was struck by the lack of defense of eminent domain that we got at the time because the – for the average person – even some of the stories I tell in my book, replacing a woodworking shop in Harlem with a Home Depot – the average person, if you say, would you rather have a Home Depot here or a woodworking shop that exports its furniture all around the country, they'd say, I'd rather have a Home Depot there. And then you get into this uh, discussion. And so you're right to point out uh, to point out that there are both sides to the issues. And as um, being a reporter, I do more – I sell my role more as laying out the costs that get unseen, um, the costs to the – the consumers or competitors and the taxpayers. And so one thing that doesn't get seen in the ethanol debate and that I try to highlight is the, the cost to drivers, the potential cost to soil, the even cost to the air. They had to waive the Clean Air Act um, for, ethanol's, uh, for ethanol's sake. And so there are lots – there are going to be costs and benefits on, and on, the, on both sides. And if, as Jim is willing to do – we're going to step away from a sort of a strict libertarianism and say we want government policy to do what's going to be best for the country and we believe that uh, government restrictions and laws and subsidies can make the country better, then obviously I'm only going to be presenting arguments on one side in the book by telling these stories. And um, my final point would be that I was glad that Jim tied the the war industries board in with Alexander Hamilton because and this is as a as a conservative I always am just thinking about what the precedents you're setting are and the Council on National Defense was originally about national defense but everybody in there wanted it to be the Council on National Control over the economy and they didn't end up getting their way. Luckily, twice they didn't end up getting their way. But will the next side? We've seen it many times that the whole Pentagon, things that get created in times of war, stay alive in times of peace. And so I can just say these big government things that are done with good intentions and, as Jim suggests, possibly with, um, with even good thinking, that they're going to end up growing and that as they grow – the guys with the best lobbyists are going to be the ones who are going to be able to take advantage of it most. And as I try to make the case in this book, that very frequently results in uh, 
harm to consumers, competitors, and taxpayers. So just in brief, yes, the, the arguments on the other side that you point out are good, and I don't go into them in my book in any depth, but that's because I think that I'm sticking up for the guy who doesn't get defended enough in, in here. We've got some time for some questions. If you have any asking questions, please raise your hand and also wait for the microphone to get to you to identify yourself uh, for the cameras as well as for the audience in general. Any questions? We've got one here in the front. You just wait for the microphone, please. Mr. Pinkerton, uh, is this working? Yeah. Um, so when you, when you spoke at first, you uh, defended um, using subsidies, government subsidies, for Boeing, or, you know, isn't it nice to have a, a large... Um, aerospace and air industry. Uh, my question is: Are you were you suggesting that the best way, the most effective, efficient, or even the only way to have these large industries, such as Boeing, um, or to build artillery, is to have it subsidized by the government? Um, uh, well, uh, another way to do it, of course, would be to just but actually was the model through most of U.S. history was the government just had arsenals. You know, we, uh, the, the Philadelphia shipyard and the Bath Iron Works. I mean, these were, just, these were government-owned entities that simply decided to make these things. Uh, 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 and you get civil servants who work for, you know, the, equivalent, the, the 1805 equivalent of $100,000 a year as opposed to, you know, uh, CEOs paying themselves $50 million a year. Uh, um... I'm not 100% persuaded, if you review American history and the wars that we've won and the wars we've lost, that uh, private sector armaments necessarily are, are better. I think, you know, you read about World War II and I think people thought, gee, we really have to win this war. So they really tried and they did. Uh, that's another, so there's at least one model to do that uh, that has been sort of, that places like the Cato Institute have simply so hard out of existence and nobody even thinks about having a, a, a publicly owned uh, armaments works. I think the, plausibly in the short term the, the way that it's going to work is that we're going to continue with uh, the current system of defense contractors doing the work and it really boils down to like three or four now. I mean it's, 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 a, it's not a, a wide open marketplace of de defense contractors Boeing and Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and kind of, that's about it in terms of all these things. I mean there's a reason why the same People support all the advertising and all the public affairs shows. It's the same bunch of companies, you know, patting themselves on the back uh, and so on. I think my solution, and this is a good sort of Madisonian take on this, would be: look, if we can't think of a better way to do this, let's do it, and let's just muckrake the hell out of them. Let's have as many journalists as possible inspecting them and studying them and so on. For sort of from from Tim on the right to Nader Rights on the left, uh, let's just keep scourging them. Because I think we all agree up here, these people aren't necessarily our friends. They're not necessarily doing it at a, at a patriotic motive. They don't necessarily do a good job. They'll only do it if they get investigated and inspector generaled uh, to death, practically, uh, in, the, in the course of things. And, and even then, we're going to need more scrutiny and a better plan for dealing with Halliburton-type ripoffs uh, at the next war. I mean, Tim, what do you what do you say about investigating defense contracts? Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about a, a system that increases work for journalists, and I fully support that, Jim. Um, now, the and I on point with both of what you're saying. My objection is the Export Import Bank has never claimed to be an agency whose purpose was to help us defend ourselves. And if Exim really does exist to help Boeing so that then Boeing can help us defend ourselves, well, then it ought to be moved into the Department of Defense. And uh, Exim, by the way, 52% of their loan guarantee deals go to Boeing, so it does seem to exist primarily to help this company. And if that's for the sake of defense, let's move it into the Department of Defense and then let people decide with a clearer picture whether it's worth their money. Any other questions here? Let's got another one here up front. The microphone. Thank you. Yes, uh, Mr. Pinkerton. Um, you were talking about eminent domain and, you know, so on and so forth, the Kilo decision. And uh, you mentioned about the airport. There's a trage tragedy where the airplane ran and hit the uh, – went, went too far off the, off the runway and hit – unfortunately killed a little girl. But 
My question is, if we increase the, the, the length of the runway, what do you do if, if a plane still goes too far? Like, where do you draw the line? You know, when, when does the government say, you know, we, we've gone too far, we're taking too many houses, houses away? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an engineer and a scientist. I guess the run, runway were, you know, I, having been through some pretty harrowing short runway landings at National Airport, I can tell you, you know, that an extra thousand feet at the runway there, you know, there'd, there'd be a lot less jitters on people taking the shuttle. Um, I, don't, I don't have a good answer for it, except that's politics. I mean, that's just that's the political process uh, 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 saying every now and then. I mean, it's not like, you know, the, the elected mayor of Chicago enjoys rooting out more constituents than he has to. I mean, I mean, and again, there's there's plenty of. I mean, I'm no fan of pouring concrete for the sake of concrete. I'm, you know, I'm a, you know, I would call if you're, after you get through reading Tim's book, you should all go back out and read uh, uh, Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of American Cities about what happens when you try and pave over perfectly good neighborhoods in New York City and elsewhere. So, you obviously need a, a, a good, healthy debate about these issues, including. The practical reality that you, every now and then you need infrastructure, and this is certainly what Alexander Hamilton believed, uh, uh, this, that supports economic growth. Uh, I'd like to follow up on these questions because I think there seems to be kind of a general theme here that you know there comes a point where you've got to you've got to find some place to stop. I mean, I can see how economies of scales, industries, for instance, would be more prone to certain types of regulation or, or subsidies or something for the purposes of you know, efficiency and such. But it does strike me as you know, not all industries are in those sorts of categories. And on top of that, you know, it's, it's hardly good government policy to keep saying, well, we'll keep going until things get really bad. You know, there's got to be some stopping point. Uh, and so the question is, is there some kind of institutional stopping point that either you can see, or is it just political, meaning people just get so fed up with all the, the muckraking stories that they'll just that policy will then switch in the other direction? Or do you see these pendulum swings? Through history, and then at which point do these uh, are these swings influenced by by politics generally? I'm a uh, a chronic pessimist, um, and I think that the, the it's a vicious circle. And uh, the more companies learn their lesson, like Microsoft and Walmart, that they can't uh, stay away from government, the more they'll come here, and the more they'll lobby for uh, for big government, and that the average person. Um, since at this point the average person still hasn't read my book, uh, doesn't necessarily understand the cost to them and uh, the concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. Um, I'm not confident that things are going to turn around. But on the other hand, I'm optimistic because as I started with, it's not new. So I don't know if it's accelerating and getting much worse either. So, Well, I would just, just you know, I, I guess I'm an optimist. I guess there's, there you are, half full, half empty uh, right here uh, before you got your, got your choice. Um, and, and point out that sometimes things surprise you in, in, in the way that they work out. I mean, for example, this, this dreaded military-industrial complex. And, and I, I guarantee that Tim and I have the same view of the, the ethics of the adverse defense contractor. I guarantee it. But somehow out of that whole mess that began with Samuel Gompers in 1916, 90 years ago, and, you know, and, and Woodrow Wilson and Secretary Baker and so on uh, uh, cartelizing the U.S. economy, we got this military-industrial complex that, among other things, uh, gave us the Internet. That was a defense, the, 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 the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, circa 1969, said, you know, we need this thing to survive nuclear wars, and it's called the Internet. They didn't call it the Internet, but they, they eventually came up with that name, and that's been the biggest bonanza for freedom, in, certainly in my lifetime. So sometimes, uh, uh, you know, through the, the political process, and again, this goes back, I go back to Polanyi, if you have a... A, a, a virtuous, hardworking population that isn't just out to rip off each other and has a certain, you know, uh, cultural homogeneity. Uh, you'll get people saying, "Well, yeah, we could do this, and then we'll create this internet thing and kind of give it away," which they did. And there's a lot of billionaires, uh, some of them libertarian, some of them not, uh, who came out of that. Not to mention all the rest of us online. We've got time for about one more question. Let's go ahead in the in the back there. Behind the, please wait for the microphone. Thank you. Thank you. I'm John Utley with the American Conservative. Uh, I want to thank Mr. Pinkerton, really putting it in focus that we we might do better with it. Is that on? Yeah. We might do better with the government running the defense industry. And as another factor, I, I came in late, whether you said it, but we, we wouldn't have an incentive for making wars either. It would be bureaucrats with their 100000 salary, not executives trying to make millions in their options there might be it's a it's really something to rethink we always think the private sector is better but to come back to having the 
having the government making the military weapons, of course, you wouldn't spread like the F-22 to 45 states to, to satisfy. But my question, rather, is in getting out of this, maybe you discussed it, how, how do you get any kind of, of reform? And I'd suggest a divided government is almost the only way between the two parties. Is that, is that, and how do we reach that? If, if you agree with that, how do we reach that? I would just I certainly agree that 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 uh, uh, you know this is this is why one reason why we're all in this room is that we have a basic confidence that checks and balances and pluralism and proceduralism and you know even lawyers sometimes uh, are, are the best you can do you know in terms of the system for for <clears throat> keeping all these uh, uh, forces in check so I'm all for uh, um, you know the, the branches investigating each other and harassing each other and chasing after each other <clears throat> but I think Things have come. Things have changed since the founders, and I think the role of the media are important. I think Tim should say something about the role of investigative journalism and how he can do things beyond what uh, the government investigating itself can do. Yeah. Well, first, I don't agree. I'm completely unconvinced on the uh, the publicizing the military, whatever the opposite of privatizing would be. Um, I have. I'm at the uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute. And one thing uh, the boss there, Fred Smith, says again and again is people need to understand that profit is not the only motive that can be a corrupting motive. And power surely is. And I try to make the point again and again in the book that what the businessman comes offering the politician is I will give you more control. And the campaign contributions are usually very small. And they only matter. And these guys don't pocket the campaign contributions. They use the money to get more power. So there might be just as many incentives for dumb wars if uh, and they'll just be less efficient at building the the fighter jets that will fight in those dumb wars in the private military. But on the uh, on the the role of journalism, yeah, I think the the media is a big part of the problem and thus the the potential solution because the big myth is so widespread. When Michael Isikoff wakes up in the morning, he says, I wonder how what Bush is doing is helping Halliburton. I wonder how this deregulation is helping whomever. And there aren't enough journalists who wake up in the morning and say, all right, uh, this company is getting good press for, call for agreeing with Al Gore. I wonder what they're getting out of it because the assumption is oh well it's always just good press or it's even more naive oh well this guy's just decided that he's got to go out and save the planet and so not enough people dig the drill the holes into that field of how will this environmentalist policy worker protection policy consumer protection policy how will that make one person rich but again that's not the question that really matters how will it hurt us by taking away our freedom and increasing our costs. So when I talk to groups of uh, young people, I almost always say, become a reporter. Become a reporter if because you will wake up in the morning asking a different question than the mainstream media do. And because of that, we might uh, make some dent in in the, uh, the Leviathan big business, big government ripoff. Well, we are just about out of time. Please join us for lunch afterward, and please help me uh, in uh, thanking our guests for today.